Now, if you've been uh, with us these last couple of weeks, uh, you will know that Elijah is ministering in the days of unfaithfulness amongst God's people. Under King Ahab, the people of Israel have been trying to follow uh, the Lord, the God of Israel. And at the same time, uh, Baal, Baal, the Canaanite God of rain. And they were hopelessly compromised. So God, true to his word, the word uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, sends his prophet Elijah to announce a drought. That is what happens in chapter 17. God is uh, graciously and actually faithfully and justly disciplining his faithless people. Anyway, by the time we get to chapter 18, the three years of drought that God has promised is up. But before God sends the rain again, he decides to show the people once and for all which God is real. Now, friends, we too are constantly in danger of spiritual compromise. Most of us here this morning will be convinced believers in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know him, we believe in him, we claim the name proudly Christian. But all around us, there are many gods and philosophies and worldviews that are powerful, popular, prevalent. And if we're not careful, we can end up drifting between them. So we listen on a Sunday to the God of the Bible. But during the rest of the week, we heed the gods of modern secular Western materialism or comfort. So we jettison aspects of the gospel that we don't particularly like or warm to. And instead, we adopt values and behaviors which the God of our age promotes and approves. But our God is a holy and righteous God who does not tolerate or condone spiritual compromise. As Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So as we go through this chapter, we are going to be reminded of four truths, which if we will heed them and hold on to them, will spur us on to follow God faithfully and not fall into spiritual compromise. Now the headings will come up on the screen. I'm afraid I couldn't get them that snappy. or So you know, if you're taking notes, write them down uh, to help you remember them. But the first one is this. Faithfulness to God is costly. Now, in verses 1 to 16, we're introduced to Obadiah. Obadiah was a senior civil servant in charge of the palace. He worked for Ahab and Jezebel. But he was a devout believer in the God of Israel. And we're told in verse 4 that while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, a great personal risk and cost... Obadiah had taken a hundred of them and hidden them in two caves, 15 each, and had supplied them with food and water. So there is Obadiah serving God faithfully, while at the same time working in a significant role for a godless king and an evil wife. 
Now, isn't that an encouragement to all of us today? Because it shows us that we can serve God faithfully even when we are working for, in, let's say, godless companies or institutions. Obadiah certainly did. But the point is that to serve God faithfully in such situations is not easy. It is emotionally draining. It is costly. It is risky. On occasions, you may have to put your job and your career, and for some people, yes, even their lives on the line. This is what Obadiah had to face up to and work through when he bumped into Elijah. So Elijah tells Obadiah to announce to Ahab that he is here. And in verses 9 to 14, Obadiah expresses his real fear. What have I done wrong that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? Friends, that isn't cowardice on Obadiah's uh, terms. No, no, that's just, um, it's just natural concern. But Elijah insists, verse 15, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. And so what did Obadiah do? We could so easily just slip over it. Verse 16, Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. See, Obadiah's concerns were real. But because he knew where his ultimate loyalties lay, he, and that he was a devout believer, he trusted God, and despite the real risk to his life, he went and did the right thing. So Elijah and Obadiah, two very different men, serving God in two very different contexts, and for both of them, their faithful service of God was costly. And friends, it will be for us if we're going to be faithful. That's the first point. Faithfulness to God is costly. But then second, in verses 18 to 21, we see the impossibility of sitting on the fence when relating to God. The impossibility of sitting on the fence when relating to God. So Obadiah goes to uh, get King Ahab, who comes to meet Elijah. And in verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you? you troubler of Israel. Now, it's often the case that those like Elijah who call for faithfulness to God's word are accused of unsettling God's people, of rocking the boat. But Elijah is having none of it. In verse 18, he points out that it is Ahab and family who are troubling Israel by abandoning the Lord's commands, and following the Baals. Elijah hasn't moved. He's remained true to God. It's Ahab who has moved and therefore causing all the upset. So Elijah tells Ahab to uh, summon the uh, people from all Israel and the prophets of Baal and Asherah to meet him at Mount Carmel. And hopefully on the screen now will come a little map so you can see where that is. So Mount Carmel, right in the north, is just uh, near the modern town of Haifa. And in verse uh, 21, Elijah issues his challenge. Elijah went before the people and said, 
How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. That's thank you. We don't need the map anymore. Thank you. So Elijah is simply issuing, isn't he, the same uh, uh, challenge that Jesus made 900 years later. You can't serve two masters. You can't worship two gods. It's not that it's, it's hard. It is impossible. And we see at the end of verse 21 how they responded. The people said nothing. They would not come off the fence. They would not uh, make an active decision to turn their back on uh, Baal and worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. They were being like we were told in our our family focus. They were being a wibbly wobbly like a jelly. They wanted to hedge their bets. They wanted a bit of both. And friends, as we look at this uh, passage together and hear God's voice, the same challenge comes to us about our own discipleship. How long will we waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, if the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is God, follow him. But if the gods of our generation are true, materialism, self-determinism, well then follow them. What we can't do is to sit on the fence. Faithfulness to God is like a marriage. It must be a total exclusive commitment. It is impossible to two-time God and get away with it. But why, even when faced with this challenge, did the people of Israel not respond? Well, I imagine there were two main reasons. First, there were attractions in the worship of Baal, which they didn't want to give up. And then second, there was fear. The worship of Baal was popular with the, with the government and the opinion formers of the day, whereas Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets. And friends, is it not the same with us? You see, Western materialism dangles in front of us a whole host of things to live for. The security that comes from wealth, fascinating places to visit, Great sporting events to be part of, comfortable homes, fine dying, prestigious and lucrative careers. Now, many of those things are not wrong in themselves. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy, nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. But instead of enjoying some of those things, some of, them ta- some of the time, as part and parcel of a wholehearted devotion to God, these things can so easily become God things. And we seek after them in competition to God. They have our heart rather than God. But it's not just the attractions of this world and its ideologies which can turn our hearts from God. So can the fear of man, the fear of going against the crowd. See, in our generation, because of actually our Christian heritage, 
There are ideas and values which accord with the Word of God. However, there are also those that are diametrically in opposition. And where society and culture are going one way, and the Word of God tells us to travel another, we cannot sit on the fence and remain silent or indifferent. And if we do remain indifferent, well, according to Jesus, we end up despising God, which is why the current situation in the Church of England is so serious. Faithfulness to God involves active decision-making. Friends, we cannot sit on the fence and waver between two opinions. God calls for an exclusive commitment that practically affects every part of our lives. God's people in Elijah's day kept silent. They didn't want to make such a commitment. And also often do we, (laughs) if we're honest. But what happens next shows why they and we must. So third, false gods are empty and futile, but the one true God is powerful and gracious. See, Elijah sets up the contest in verses 22 to 24. He and the prophets of Baal will each have a bull. They'll cut it in pieces and set it on wood, but not set fire to it. They'll each call on the name of the Lord their God, and the one who answers with fire, well, he is God. So the prophets of Baal believe that if you actually want to get your God to work, you have to get into kind of frantic activity to persuade God to work. And so that's what they do. They think the more they do, the more likely Baal is to act. So verse 26, they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. Verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to talk to them. Shout loud, he said, surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and needs to be awakened. I mean, Elijah, he's taunting them. Why? Actually, because it's, it's, a, it's vital for the welfare of the, of the people that Bell is exposed as ridiculous and false. And actually, his taunts are, are ruder than our translators uh, allow. Uh, busy here, there is a euphemism. Elijah is effectively saying, perhaps he's on the loo. He should have had prunes for breakfast. He's been there for hours. Verse 28. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid any attention. It's quite clear that Baal is no God at all. He is powerless and empty. just like materialism, is powerless and empty. It can't forgive us our sins. It cannot save us from the judgment of God. It cannot lead us into a knowledge of God. The prophets of Baal believed that to make Baal work, you had to twist his arm with frantic activity and painful displays of commitment. And how wonderfully and gloriously different 
are Elijah and the Lord. What a contrast. Verse 30, Elijah repairs the altar of the Lord, which is in ruins. He gathers 12 stones, one for each tribe, which speaks of a God's desire to bring the 12 tribes of Israel back together again. See, Ahab may have rejected Judah and God's temple in Jerusalem, but God hasn't. His promises to David and Solomon, they still stand. And then in verse 33, Elijah makes them pour jar after jar of water onto the offering and the, and the wood to, to kind of soak in the water, show that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. And then in verse 36, Elijah simply prays at the time of the sacrifice that was happening, you know, in Jerusalem, at the, in the Judah, in the temple. The prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. No dancing, no slashing, no frantic shouting. Elijah simply asks the Lord to do what he said he would do. Friends, when we pray, we're not trying to twist God's arm. Because we can't twist God's arm. And God takes the gracious initiative. The Lord will work when he decides to work. We do not fast, pray and worship to get God to work like the prophets of Baal did. No, it's the complete reverse. We pray, fast, and worship because the Lord has revealed his will to us and is graciously at work among us. So Elijah prays and we read verse 30. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord he is God. Yes, he, God had indeed turned the hearts of his people back to him. The Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, shows that he is God. And notice again, verse 36, that Elijah did all of this at God's co- command. Right from the beginning, it was the Lord's idea. It wasn't Elijah's. It was God's gracious initiative to show that he is God and to turn the people's hearts back to him. Now, we may not have seen fire from heaven burning up a soaking bull and altar, but we have something even more persuasive than what the Israelites saw that day. In Jesus Christ, we have a figure who unquestionably lived. The accounts of his life are well supported historically. His amazing miracles are mentioned by Christians and non-Christian sources alike. He claimed to be God, but he was not deluded because he was living, he was loving and wise. And his resurrection from the dead was well witnessed and it transformed those fearful disciples into world-changing missionaries. Friends, actually the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate Mount Carmel moment. God, in his grace, took the initiative. He came after his wandering people to call them back to himself. And not just his own people, actually, 
the whole world. There was a sacrifice for sins. Not a bull on an altar, but Jesus himself on the cross. And there was a powerful display of God's might. Not fire, but the resurrection of Jesus. We have God's word about Jesus. And so the challenge comes to us actually even stronger. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal or materialism or self-determinism or any other philosophy around today is God, follow it. But let's not for a moment think that we can follow them both. And then finally, the one true God condemns false prophets and teachers. Verse 40, then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Now friends, I know that this shocks many. Some have said Elijah went too far, but actually he's actually simply carrying out what God had commanded in Deuteronomy 13. That those in Israel who lead people to follow gods, follow other gods must be put to death. Now, in Israel of old, the church and the state, they were all intertwined. It was one and the same thing. At that time, God's people were offered the agents of God's judgments, just as the nations were God's agents of judgment on Israel. But now things are different. We live in the last days where Christian people are to go to the ends of the world preaching a gospel of repentance and forgiveness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. While we wait for that day when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And the judgment on the prophets of Baal points ahead for us, points ahead to that final judgment, which will fall on that day. And what did Jesus say would happen to false teachers and prophets who lead people astray there? Because he does say something. The words are going to come on the screen now. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large stone were hung round their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life main than with two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out. See, Jesus' words and the severity of verse 40 of 1 Kings 18 should challenge us about our own attitude to false teachers and false prophets in the church. Do we think it doesn't matter very much? Is it just a matter of interpretation? Or do we see that it is a matter of eternal life and death? And what is the attitude to sin in our own lives? Do we say, well, yeah, it's fine because oh, it's all forgiven. We know, which is wonderfully true, my friends. Yes, it is. In the cross, there is forgiveness for every sin. No one here is beyond the grace of God. He is gracious. He takes the initiative. We see that here, isn't it? He is the one who was turning the people's hearts back to him. But the sign that we are really serving the one true God and trusting in his grace 
is that with God's help, we are constantly battling the sin in our lives, putting it to death, lest it lead us away from Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge to be faithful to you, even though we live in days of unfaithfulness and compromise. Please remind us of the truths of 1 Kings 18, so that like Obadiah and Elijah, we may serve you and obey your word, even though it costs us to do so. Help us to see the impossibility of remaining on the fence in our discipleship. And constantly bring to our mind the wonder of the Lord Jesus and your gracious initiative to win us for yourself. And Lord, do help us to have a healthy fear of the severity of your judgment on all who would... uh, are all sin and all who would lead your children astray. And we ask this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.